We are so thankful you've chosen to tune in on whatever platform you're using, whether Podbean or through Facebook or iTunes. Whatever way you're listening, I just want to say thank you for joining in. We'd love to hear from you, so drop a comment to us or email us at thegrove267 at gmail.com. If you want to know more about us as a ministry, go to hisgrove.com, or you can also check us out on Facebook at Deeply Rooted Ministries in Canton, Texas. We believe God wants to use these messages to spread His truth to a needy world, but primarily a needy church, which needs the truth of the Word to resurrect among us so that Heaven's army will be equipped to win souls and train them up in the Lord. Jesus said if we know the truth, it will set us free. So help us to bring freedom to people's lives by sharing these messages in any way you can. Now to our podcast. Well, welcome back to uh, our continued journey through the book of Hebrews. We're going to be in chapter 5 today. And, uh, you know, in reading over this prior to, as I came down to our discipleship center, I was um, just reading over this briefly to kind of see if there were some main points that God um, revealed to me or, or whatnot, as I oftentimes do. And just to kind of take some time to pray. You know, I'll, I'll be real honest. When it comes to Melchizedek, or as I will probably pronounce his name, Melchizedek, uh, there, there's a mystery around this guy. Um, you know, we might or might not go back into Genesis and, and look at kind of his introduction into the whole theme of things. But I'm just going to be real honest. There's a mystery for me. Maybe some guys have it figured out. Some people have looked over this and studied it really in depth, and they know exactly who, you know, he is. Uh, what I'll say is I think he is a foreshadow of Christ. Um, I think that he it's less important about who he was, um, and it's more important about who he's pointing to. And we're going to talk about that a little bit, some in chapter 5, but I think we more so get into that in some of the following chapters, particularly in chapter 7. Um, and so there's going to be some other highlights that I point out in this one, but I just want to kind of throw that out there. In this chapter, there is some mystery for me in this, and that's okay. It's a, you know I've learned to understand that it's okay for there to be some things that are mysterious in the Word that I have yet to have unveiled to my spiritual eyes to see. Do I believe that we are able to at the right moment, the right time, as God sees fit, as we seem trustworthy with his word, that he would unveil it to us? Sure, absolutely. Um, but it's okay that as long as we're seeking with humility that God's right, we're not, and that we're spending time in his word, legitimately seeking his face in it to understand his truth, God will apportion to us the wisdom that is needed when it's needed. And so, uh, just being upfront with you guys, I don't fully understand and grasp everything about Melchizedek. Uh, but we're going to do our best to kind of go through this. And like I said, when we get to chapter 7, that will be more prominent then, but he does get, he does get brought up here. So, in verse 5. I'm sorry, chapter 5, verse 1, he starts out with the word for, as I hopefully have pointed out to you guys all the time, when a therefore or a for is stated, you have to kind of know that he's bringing the context from a previous chapter, but particularly the end of it, into this context that he's going to be starting. So he says, for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Now, this is right after... 
He's talking about Jesus being our high priest. Um, that he was made just like us in every respect. That he can sympathize with, with us in our weaknesses because he himself was beset with the same thing. Though he never sinned. This is the, the beauty of it. Is that in every respect he was made just like us. In everything he was suffering his temptation. He understood what it meant to be weak in those moments um, uh, uh, where his flesh wanted to do something. Just like he says in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus wanted the cup to be passed from him. And it was a moment in which he could understand and sympathize with us in the moment of the struggle between the flesh and the spirit. But praise God that he always chose the spirit as an example to us of what we can do in this life through the grace that God will give to us being empowered by the Holy Spirit that Christ has um, washed us with. So he's talking about this, that we have confidence to draw near to the throne of grace, and we can may receive mercy and find grace to help time of need. Because Jesus is our high priest, he can sympathize with us. He knows what it is to have moments of weakness and yet still choose to walk in the Spirit. And so he says that the high priest, back in Levitical law, it was chosen, um, uh, I should say appointed, to act on behalf of men, to offer sacrifices and gifts in relation to God on behalf of man. And he goes on, he says, he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. Now, these first, really, ten verses... It's pretty straightforward. There's not a ton to unpack. You can go back and study in Levitical law what some of the duties of the priests were, what it looked like, the garments they were supposed to wear. Let me just tell you this. They were a picture or a foreshadow of who we are as the spiritual priesthood. Uh, you go into First Peter chapter 2. You're going to see God's no longer looking for physical priests. That's not what he's looking. He's not looking for physical priests who are going to offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. Because Hebrews 10 tells us that he's done away with that. It's no longer about the blood of bulls and goats. It's no longer going to be the sacrificial system that he instituted through Torah. It is through Christ, the body that was prepared for us. And we, as the spiritual priesthood, the royal priesthood, we offer spiritual sacrifices that are pleasing to God only through our high priest, Jesus Christ. And so, you, there's no other means to get to God. There's no other means to come to God. There's no other intercessor that's going to stand uh, between us and God at the right hand of the Father. It is Jesus Christ and Him alone. All right? And he goes on and he says, um, essentially talking about this in verse 5. So also, so in the same exact way about which a priest is not going to be something which they say, hey, I'm going to take this for myself. No, you are only appointed that or called by God to be such. So also, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And he says, Also in another place, you are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. Now, this is where it gets um, mysterious, and this is where it begins to kind of unfold for us a little bit towards like, what in the world is happening? Melchizedek was somebody that's identified with Abraham, and, and there's a whole story that goes on to you. I think it's in Genesis 14. You can go read it. 
And Melchizedek essentially is a representation of the eternal priesthood. It says that he has neither father nor mother, that he has no end of days or beginning of days. He just simply is, right? Uh, and this is, again, this is where it gets mysterious. Um, and so you, you look at this. Um, I forget what his name means. Um, uh, he's the, the king of Salem, and I, th- I think that Zedek is a righteousness, like a, uh, a son of righteousness, something to that degree, and, and I can't remember it now, so I'm not going to go back and look at it. But the point is, is he represents an eternal priesthood. It's one that he sits in that priesthood forever. He's not um, ended through death because he had no end of days. And this is why I say that I, I think that Melchizedek is a foreshadow of Christ. And it says, interestingly, that Christ does not serve in the uh, Levitical lineage. He doesn't serve in the lineage of Aaron, who was the first Levite priest, Levitical priest. He serves after the order of Melchizedek, who predated Aaron. When the Levites were even um, brought in their inception into this whole thing. And so I think it's almost like what he's doing right now is he's bypassing um, Torah. He's bypassing law. And he's getting into something that was a physical thing. It says Melchizedek was a priest of God and he served on behalf of Abraham. Whenever Abraham was there and they gave tithes to him and whatnot. Again, go research that. And it's like almost like he's bypassed the law, the Levites, and he's gotten right back into the beginning of where he was. It's very similar to marriage. Marriage is something that was instituted in the very beginning. But there were some things in the law that actually changed the concept of what things were in the beginning of what God ordained. And this might be a little bit confusing to you. Maybe you could go read in, in Mark 10. And actually, let's go to it. Because I think that is a very similar concept of what we're talking about with Melchizedek and him bypassing the law or the Levitical priesthood that was in the law. In Mark 10, you're going to find this concept here. It's starting in verse 2. And I was, was not even going to, this was like not even on my radar. Um, and so I know that God has something here for us to kind of glean from it. Uh, but this was not even on my radar when I was going through this earlier. But we're just going to follow where the Spirit wants us to go on this. In Mark 10, starting in verse 2, it says, And Pharisees came up in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful? Now, understand, the Pharisees are going to be looking at the law of Moses. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, what did Moses command you? They said, well, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And that's what Moses said in Deuteronomy chapter 22, and I believe 23, maybe it was 24, he talks about it, that there were some concepts in which he said, look, if a wife, if, if you go onto the marriage bed uh, when... Um, when you get married and you go to the marriage bed to consummate, that's the word I was looking for, consummate your marriage with sexual union, he says that uh, if, if the, the woman said that she was a virgin, but you find no evidence of her virginity on that night, he says you're to take the evidence to the elders and it says if she was convicted of that in which she was deemed a liar and she brought shame upon the house of Israel, upon her house, then it says that she's to be taken outside of the camp and stoned to death. And it says, and, and uh, you can remarry, right? And he says, but if she was telling the truth, then the husband would be punished and he may not divorce her all the days of his life. And so the Pharisees are asking this question, according to the law of Moses, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And Jesus says, what did Moses allow you to do? 
And they said, well, he allowed us to divorce. And listen to what Jesus says. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. He said, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. And listen to what he says right after. But from the beginning of creation, meaning from the beginning of when marriage was instituted, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And, and I hope you're kind of catching what he did here, because essentially Jesus is telling them, yes, under the law of Moses, there was some wiggle room when it came to divorce. But that was not God's intention in the beginning. And I think in the same way, you know, you can look at the Levitical priesthood and you can say there's some wiggle room around that. But that was never God's intention of what the priesthood was going to be and how they would represent him in the beginning. And I think that he's bypassed the law of Moses now as we're ushered into this new covenant through the blood of Christ as our high priest. We're bypassing Levitical law for the priesthood. And we've now followed after the order of Melchizedek, an eternal priesthood. And that's the order that Christ serves at. And so I hope that that makes sense to you. Like I said, I don't know all the ins and outs of how this all works. I'd encourage you just go study it. I think there's other pressing things that we need to get into more so in this. But I want us to understand that the priesthood that we are a part of as the church of Jesus Christ, is not the Levitical priesthood under the law of Moses. It is the one that serves after the order of Melchizedek, because Jesus is our high priest, and we are the royal priesthood as the church. There is no longer a Levitical priesthood that offers intercessions or sacrifices on behalf of man unto God. It's no longer there. That has been done away with, as we're going to get into Hebrews chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10, where he talks about that that has been made obsolete. It is no longer. When we come into Christ, we are now part of a spiritual priesthood that serves after the order of Melchizedek, the eternal priesthood. And so, with that kind of thrown out there and hopefully understood, hopefully you guys are, as somebody used to say to me, smelling what I'm stepping in. Um, hopefully you guys are smelling what I'm stepping in as we keep journeying through this. In verse 7, he says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who is able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. I, I don't want to skip over this too quickly. Because I want this to really kind of soak into our hearts and our minds of understanding just what this is talking about. Now this word for reverence that's used here is, is not a Greek word that we are accustomed to seeing oftentimes. It's, it's actually kind of a, um, uh, it's more the minority of when it's used in scripture. And it's the word eulabia and it essentially means... Um, a reverence or a veneration or reverence towards God, godly fear or piety. Uh, it could even go as far as being dread um, in this. It's a caution. It's something which you're approaching something with caution and you kind of have this understanding that this is bigger and better uh, than you are. And so you approach it with this reverence. Uh, but not only that, it includes this concept of piety, which is essentially holy living, and so it, it's, it's approaching the throne of God or approaching the Father 
knowing, okay, I'm going to do everything I can to make sure that I have a clear conscience before him. That, that I make sure that my life is in order before I start approaching the Father. That's kind of what this word implies. It's different from the word phobos, which is just completely, it's terror and dread. It's what the people would have had in Israel when they were at the Mount Sinai and God's presence descended. And it was, you know, thunders and peals of lightning and just this volcanic um, type um, atmosphere around Mount Sinai to where it was just terrifying. And even God said, if you or a beast touches this mountain, you will die. I mean, it was terror. This kind of has an attachment of reverence and piety or a holy life to say, I'm going to make sure things are right before I approach him. And that's exactly what it says Jesus had. And and to me, that's a fascinating concept to know that in the days of his flesh, Jesus walked in flesh. He was beset even with the same weaknesses as us because as Hebrews 2 talks about, it says that he was made like us in every respect. Not like, if you want to go back and read it, it says that he was made like us in every respect. Verse 17, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Every way he was made like us. That means that he also was beset with weakness. Though he himself never catered to it. He always walked in the spirit. But that doesn't mean that he wasn't tempted. If there was no temptation unto sin, then the temptation ceases to exist. Jesus not only was tempted, but he suffered in his temptation. Meaning he had to wrestle between the flesh and the spirit. This is a profound statement of what the author here in Hebrews is making in verse 7. And it says that as he walked in the days of his flesh, it says he offered up loud prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. I I think there's a couple things on this one that I want to point out. One, do you ever pray like this? I mean, if Jesus is our example and he prayed like this, then... Shouldn't we have this? I don't think it's something we can manifest on our own. I think this just comes whenever we begin to take on the heart of God and He shares His heart with us. And I've talked about it before, not very often, but I have talked about it, I think, a handful of times. In all the podcasts that I've done, all the sermons that I've done, a handful of times I've talked about, um, there have been, I think, two times that I can say that this is how I prayed. And it wasn't something that I was manifesting on my own. It was something that in the moment God began to open my heart and share His heart with mine um, for someone or for a situation. And one of those times was my brokenness over sin. It was a a time in which I knew God had told me to do something and um, I failed. I didn't do it. I was a coward and I, I... Um, I failed and it broke me and I remember sitting in worship one morning in our living room and I got down on my knees and I should say I got down it was almost like God was saying get on your knees and I got on my knees and I just wept and I wept and I did the ugly cry and it, it wasn't necessarily me doing it as much as it was almost like God sharing the burden and the brokenness of my sin of how it hurt him. And I mean, I'll never forget it. 
And there's another time where we were praying for someone, someone I didn't really even know. And I started praying, and I was totally fine. I was even, as other people were praying, I don't know if you guys are like this, but I am. I'm like thinking in my mind, like, what am I going to say? What am I going to pray about? You know, and the time comes, and it's silent. And so I start, I open my mouth, and I start praying. And and I'm totally in check, calm, cool, collected in this moment. And I open my mouth, and I start praying. And then next thing I know, I'm like uncontrollably weeping, pleading with God for this person's salvation. Um, to a point where I had to get up from these other men, almost somewhat embarrassed at what was going on, and I had to step away and walk away. And it was an uncomfortable moment for me, but it was like God was sharing his burden for this person of what he feels. And I think Jesus walked like that. I think that's why oftentimes the disciples came to him and they said, teach us how to pray. Because I think they witnessed oftentimes Jesus praying like this. And this wasn't just a, you know, um, a heartfelt tear type thing. This was loud cries and tears. And it says this, he was heard, not because he was the son of God. He wasn't heard because his name was Jesus, the name above all names. He was heard because of his reverence, his reverential piety towards the father. Now you might think that just because you lift up some prayers to God that he's going to hear you. I will tell you, he will acknowledge your prayers. But that doesn't mean that he's going to hear your prayer. You look at Second Chronicles 7.14, the famous passage, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, turn from their wicked ways and seek my face, then I will hear from heaven. Right? The, the, the concept is, is that if you're going to pray, but you're going to do it in the right way with a reverential piety towards God, He will hear. Even fast forward to the New Covenant in 1 Corinthians, I'm sorry, 1 Peter 3 7, it says that husbands honor your wives um, so that your prayers may not be hindered. You see, guys, um, and ladies, if you're not living your life the way that you need to, I'm not talking about coming to him and repenting for those things. I think he acknowledges and hears that because you're in the midst of repentance and true, humble repentance. I'm talking about if you try to have sin in your life, but then you go to God and you want to try to pray uh, for something or someone, he might acknowledge and he says, yeah, I, I see that you're praying, but I'm not going to hear your prayer. Because you're not doing what you're supposed to. And I think this, this one verse says so much about Jesus and in relation to us about how we should pray and what does it look like to get our prayers answered and what are the conditions to it. Because if and then are conditions. God says, if you do this, then I will do this. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. I mean, all of this is a conditional thing that if you are doing what you're supposed to, he will hear your prayer. He goes on and he says in verse 8, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. I mean, verse 8, come on. If Jesus, the Son of God, learned obedience through suffering, do you not think that you and I are going to have to engage in the exact same formula or blueprint to learn our obedience to the Father? 
to learn how to, how to subject ourselves under the Spirit's leading and rule even when we don't want to. Learning obedience. Jesus had to learn obedience. It even talks about the prophecy in Isaiah 11 when it says that he shall eat curds of honey um, when he knows how to refuse the, the evil and choose the good. Jesus had to be sanctified, if you will, into learning obedience of how to set aside the flesh and walk in the Spirit. And again, let me preface it, he never sinned. Otherwise, he could not be our Passover lamb. He never sinned. But he had to learn obedience. And the way that God chose for the Son of God to learn obedience was through what he suffered. Not how he prospered or how he was, quote unquote, blessed. It was what he suffered for the call of God. And you and I will have the exact same formula. It will not be through blessing. You must decrease in this life if you want heaven's influence to increase in your life. That is the formula of this new covenant. Maybe it not wasn't of the old. But it is of the new. And that's the reason why I say that is because it was for Christ. And Christ is our example. And if we want to abide in Him, we ought to walk in the same way which He did. And He was not one who on this life physically prospered. As what many of the teachings are out there today. Most of us today, if we lived and walked the same life as Jesus did, that the things that He had to go through, we would have caved halfway through. Most of us, if we were to live just a, a semblance of the life that Paul lived for the cause of Christ and the mission and the glory of God, we would have caved halfway through. Go read it in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Go read about it in 2 Corinthians chapters 10, 11, and 12. Go read about what Paul went through in this life. And because he suffered for the cause of Christ, he considered himself blessed. It wasn't that he was blessed in Christ, and so thus he prospered. We've got to get our mind wrapped around this. This life was never supposed to be something of prospering and blessing as a sign of God's favor on your life. That was an old covenant um, promise. But in no way is it the new covenant promise in the way that many people take it today. And he goes on and he says in verse 9, And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. I don't know what it means that it says them being made perfect. I could take that in several different ways of what that's implying. I'm just going to tell you, I don't fully grasp and understand and can say definitively what that's stating. I, I, I just, I can't tell you exactly what that's stating. And so I'm just going to tell you, go study Go study it out. Maybe God will give you understanding in a way that he hasn't given me on this passage right here. What I do know is that it says he became the source. And I talked about that in a previous chapter and in a previous podcast on some of the other Hebrews ones that I did. He became the source of eternal salvation to all who believe in him. Is that what it says? No. To all who obey him. John 3.36 says, um, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see that life, but the wrath of God would remain on him. You look in 2 Thessalonians 1.3-8, it says that you are suffering to prove you worthy of the kingdom of heaven for which you are suffering. He goes on and he says, And the Son, Jesus, is going to come back and he's going to inflict vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Obedience 
is crucial to a believer's life. Not only could I go as far as saying that if you are not obeying what the word of God tells you to do, when you know the truth, you might not even be saved. But as we're going to find out in Hebrews chapter 10, 26-31, you could absolutely be saved, having been sanctified by the blood of the covenant. The author includes himself. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth that no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, you can be a believer and disobedient to his word. It is possible. But it is equally as possible that you could be an unbeliever who's just deceiving yourself to think that you're part of God's kingdom and you're disobedient to his will. So let me just tell you, obedience is what brings about sanctification and purification in our lives. You are not sanctified as you ought to be and you are not purified as you ought to be. Because first, uh, is it James one twenty two? I think, or maybe it's First Peter one twenty two. Let me see. It is not First Peter one twenty two, so it's got to be James one twenty two. He says, "But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves." Isn't that just a, a fascinating concept that he talks about this? There's also another one where he says, "Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth." This is the same concept. Your obedience to the word of God and wrestling through it. The suffering that you have internally, that conflict within you. The flesh and the spirit. When you choose the spirit, you're not only just choosing obedience, you're choosing your soul getting purified to a greater level and your whole body, soul and spirit being sanctified to a greater level. This is what Romans 6 talks about when he says that when you set yourself as an obedient slave to righteousness, it leads to sanctification, which leads to eternal life. What did this just say? Being made perfect, he began the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Obedience leads to sanctification, which leads to eternal life. If you want another picture of that one, you can go into Genesis, um, Genesis, Galatians chapter 6, 7 through 10, when he says, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that he will also reap. If we sow to the flesh, we will reap corruption. If we sow to the spirit, you will reap eternal life. And then he goes on, and we will reap if we do not give up. You see, as you sow to the spirit, you become sanctified more into the image of Christ. And its ultimate end is eternal life. He says he's the source. It's not you. It's Christ. Christ is the source of eternal salvation. And he goes on being designated by God um, a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. The everlasting order. A couple verses you can go look at. You can go look at John 3.36 that I quoted. 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1.3-9. You can go look at John chapter 14. The whole the whole verse or the whole chapter is really good. And First John 5.3 uh, is another good one to go along with those. So going on into the rest of this, we're going to finish this up in these last four verses. About this, we have much to say. All right, this, this concept of not only Jesus being after the order of Melchizedek, but this concept of obedience um, leading to through Christ, your obedience to Christ and through Christ um, leading to eternal salvation being made perfect, um, learning obedience through what you suffer, all those things. About all this, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain 
since you've become dull of hearing, which is the Greek word nothros. It means sluggish, lazy, stupid, or slothful. It means you've, you've disregarded it intentionally. You've chosen to ignore it. You say essentially, I, I don't care. I've been forgiven. I don't care. But you can't understand. You're still stuck on milk because that's all you want to be on. He says, I've got so much more I want to tell you about these things, but I can't because you've become sluggish or lazy of hearing. You've tuned your, you've tuned your ears off. You're, you're more worried about what Paul warns Timothy about when he says, hey, hey, Timmy, there's going to be people who are going to come in and they're going to be preaching messages that are going to tickle people's ears. They're going to be preaching messages, you know, that people are going to have this, this scratch behind their ear where it's like, oh man, it just feels so good when you scratch that. Instead of giving them the hard truths. There's going to be plenty of people out there who are going to preach messages like that. I'll just tell you, I, I know that there is, even in the area that I'm at, there are pastors out there who they, they don't give convicting messages. They just bring the fluff. They want people to feel good about themselves. Man, when I teach, I don't want people to feel good about themselves. I want people to understand that they are a wretch. That, that's just the honest truth. And I think Jesus said the same thing because in Luke 17.10, he talks about it. He says, look, about these servants who go out, they do their master's will. And then afterwards, they come and they say this. We've only done what was our duty for we are unworthy servants. I don't deserve to be your servant. I don't deserve to be given the spirit of adoption. I am in that concept worthless. God thought I was worth dying for. But in that concept I am worthless. Because I have not done anything. That would merit the kindness and the mercy and compassion. And the grace that you have bestowed to me. I don't deserve any of it. And the last thing I want to do. Is fluff people up to make them feel better about themselves. I'm not going to hold street signs on the side of a road that's going to tell people that I have no idea who they are and what's going on in their life. Man, you look amazing today. And that's called flattery. And Romans 16, 17 through 18 tells us that we better make sure we watch out for those people and avoid them because they do not serve the Lord Jesus Christ. But their own appetites and their own bellies. I'm going to tell things how they are and I'm going to get down to the nitty gritty of things. And I'm going to bring challenging and convicting messages that are going to try to build up Christ in you, not you. He says, guys, you become dull of hearing. You don't want to listen to these messages because you're just content to just stay on milk. And that's a dangerous place as we're going to see in chapter 6. He says, it's a dangerous place for you to just want to stay on milk. Listen to what he goes on in this um, exhortation to them. He says, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, so now we know that these are people who um, have been in the faith for a while. They've been infants in Christ for a long time and they're still stuck on formula. They're still stuck stuck on you know, nursing or on maybe even moved forward to just some, some baby formula or baby infant um, type oatmeal stuff, right? But they don't want the solid food. That comes with too much responsibility. You know, I've had men who have come through my ministry um, who I've tried to groom and raise up to be deacons and elders. And I'm, I can think of at least two that I approached them after uh, you know, a period of time had gone by. They had been tested and proven. And I really saw a lot of potential in them. They, they had a heart for the people. 
And I approached them. I said, hey, I want to begin kind of training you for being a deacon. Or I want to start trying to, to really train you to be an elder. And you know I got this response twice. It didn't happen often. There was only about three or four guys over the course of ten years that I really felt like were ready. But twice I got this answer. I don't want that responsibility. I just kind of want to keep just attending church and and serving here and there and just being behind the scenes. And to a degree, that's okay. But God didn't call us to just be a people who are just content to stay as we are. As each of us has received a gift, let us use it to serve one another. God's called us to grow and to grow abundantly. And sure, not everybody is going to be in leadership. I totally get that. But God has called us to not say, I don't want the responsibility to deal with other people and to have that on my plate. I just kind of want to deal with myself. That's the only one I really want to deal with. Sadly, that's exactly what's going on here. These people should be teachers by now. But they're still having to be taught the basic principles of the oracles of God, which is what he goes on to say. He said, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk, everyone who's content to just stay on milk, who doesn't want the deeper things of the word of God, who doesn't want to live the deeper things of the word of God, who doesn't want to go and progress into a deeper love, they're just content to just kind of you know, love a little. They don't want to love big. They're just content to give just a little bit, but they don't want to give big. They might do a couple small radical things in their life, but man, they don't want to be sold out. You know what Jesus calls that? He calls that lukewarm. They don't want to be hot and they don't want to be cold. They just want to kind of chill out and be somewhere in the middle. And he says, that's what you guys are doing right now. You just want to do a little Jesus, but you want to have a little bit of the world too. And he says, you need milk, not solid food for everyone who lives on milk. Check this out. Is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. First Corinthians 3 says that you very well might be in Christ, but you're an infant. You're still a baby. And everybody has their starting place, but the point is, is what the author here is trying to state. It says, you've been there for a long time. You're not growing. You're stagnant. You're just sitting still, and you're content with your infancy to live of the flesh and just have a little semblance of the Spirit in your life. He says, and that's not cool, because you're running a very high risk and a very big danger of what's going to be coming in the next chapter. Because if you're just a child, if you're just an infant... You're way more susceptible to the enemy than if you're full grown. Think about it. In a herd, if you got a herd that's being um, preyed upon by a group of lions, what do they always go after? They identify the weak and the young. And those are the ones that they go after because they know they're easy pickings. They don't go after the strongest. They go after the weak ones. They go after the young ones. And he says, For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So let me just tell you, if you're an infant, 
If you're a babe in Christ, you do not have the, the skills of discerning good from evil. You just don't have it. Satan is a deceiver. And he's a manipulative deceiver that is really good at what he does. And he knows the word of God. And he knows how to twist it. And the point of all this is, is that if you're going to stay as a young child in the faith, you run the risk of being deceived by the enemy. Because he will come after you. Because he is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour And when you want to just stay as an infant or you want to just stay as a babe and you don't want to progress in Christ and take on the responsibility of bearing the burdens of one another, growing and really sacrificial love, giving the way that Christ gave, then you're easy pickings. We need to grow. In 1 John 5, chapter 20, he says this, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. The point in all this is that God has commissioned us to grow. And the dangers that unfold in our life are very real and eternal if we choose to not press into Him the way that He's commissioned us to do it. Stay tuned for our next chapter over chapter 6 because I believe that um, it goes hand in hand with the exhortation that the author just gave in chapter 5 at the end to make sure that we grow up We don't stay stagnant or infantile in our faith because the dangers are very real. And as I said, they can be very eternal. Y'all be blessed.